0: Do you stand with me as we read, please? We're reading from Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord.
1: We're spending two Sundays wrapping up our sermon series on stewardship. The notion that we are entrusted with certain things as disciples and how we use those things both communicates the degree or quality of our discipleship, but as we continue to measure how we use the resources that God has given to us, that helps us to grow as disciples. These three sayings of Jesus that are grouped together by Matthew indicate uh, are are thematically linked uh, by this idea that a disciple is characterized by a singularity of purpose. That's what we're talking about this morning, right? Disciple is characterized by a singularity of purpose. Walt Disney is a good example of singularity of purpose. He uh, long had the goal of creating an entertainment company. In uh, 1921, he began by entering the newspaper business and uh, was soon after fired from his first job there, for lack of creativity, he went on to uh, begin uh, Lafogram, which was his first company in 1921, and he raised uh, a decent amount of money at the time. He, apparently he was a natural salesman. It was about 15,000 dollars, which would be about 180,000 dollars today. His company was going decently, but his distributor fell apart and declared bankruptcy. And at that point, it affected him to the extent that he also lost everything. He found himself living in poverty. He found himself occasionally eating dog food uh, to ease his hunger. And with the last few dollars he had in his pocket, he bought a ticket to Hollywood from Kansas City. There he created one of his first characters, uh, which was Oswald the Rabbit. And he approached Universal Studios to have Oswald the Rabbit, uh, you know, kind of made into a significant character. Universal promptly stole Oswald the Rabbit from him and also wooed away the few animators that he had, again, leaving him reduced uh, to nothing, to having no resources. But again, he picked himself up and moved in the same direction, driven by the same purpose that he had set for himself. And as uh, time went on, he created Disney, And began to create new characters, but that wasn't the end of his challenges. And many of the pictures or movie ideas that we see today and think this is a Disney classic, this is a piece of Americana, were not received as such when they were released. Uh, When Disney started pitching the idea of Mickey Mouse, the reaction was, "This is a terrible idea. Uh, Women will be terrified by the character of a mouse." (laughs) And. Several features that he produced that we look back on and think of as as maybe being classics were received poorly at the time of their distribution, right? Uh, This included uh, Pollyanna and Fantasia. Uh, Pinocchio had to be stopped and rewritten uh, mid-production. Three Little Pigs was thought to have too few characters, and on and on it goes. One of the stories of Disney's uh, singular, uh, you know, commitment to what he perceived to be his calling was his pursuit of the story of Mary Poppins, written by Pamela Travers in London. Uh, she did not want to part with the story and sell it to Disney. Disney had to visit her 16 times, right, to try to woo her to sell the story right so that he could produce the much-beloved classic. And then, of course, after, Disney's, uh, yeah, after Walt Disney's death, Disney goes on to buy ABC to uh, buy, I think Marvel, and then ultimately to buy Lucas Films, and now it seems like it controls the world. Right? A man who started with nothing, who had failed numerous times, kept going in the same direction, driven by a singular purpose, ultimately to find success in that direction. Now, that's not a Christian direction. But it's a good example of what it really means to be driven by a particular purpose, by a particular commitment that informs all of our other commitments in life. And this is the idea that that ties together these three distinct teachings uh, that Jesus offers, that we as disciples are called to a singular purpose. So we're going to consider each in turn, and um, we'll do so by—we'll just summarize each notion. The first one is going to be two treasures. The the second— right, will be two, uh, two lights, and the third will be two masters. So firstly, uh, two treasures. Jesus begins our section of Matthew by saying that there are two treasures. There's heavenly treasure and there's earthly treasure, and he's urging the disciples to invest in heavenly treasure rather than earthly treasure. Okay, why? Why not invest to some degree, an earthly treasure. After all, we're going to be here for a number of years. Well, Jesus' first point seems to be that uh, earthly treasure is not uh, is not something that you can guarantee its safety, and so you better be careful how much you invest in something that is easily corruptible. Jesus says that moth and rust destroy. Rust is probably not the best translation. There, it's a very old translation. But literally, the word means eaters and is probably referring to rodents. So the notion is uh, you might have some kind of treasure that could be consumed. And indeed, in the ancient world, treasure often meant multiple sets of clothes or some high-end clothes. Moths and, and rodents might come and eat that sort of thing. Not only that, but your treasure, if it's earthly, is susceptible to being robbed. It's pretty easy to break into a house in the ancient world. Houses, the walls of houses were made of straw and clay. You could dig a hole in the back of the house, sneak into the house, take what you wanted and sneak back out through the hole that you had made. Jesus seems to be saying, you might invest all this time and energy into earthly treasure, but that earthly treasure can be expired very easily. It can be consumed by things that you have no control over. This is why uh, Jesus puts it this way in verse 21. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. So the point I want to make is even though Jesus is saying that your earthly treasure is potentially corruptible, that's not really ultimately his main point. He's saying, yes, it's a risky venture, but in verse 21 is his main point where he says something much greater. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now at the forefront it certainly is money, but we wouldn't limit what Jesus is talking about uh, to money because right, your treasure can exist in all sorts of things and he's defining your treasure as where your heart is located. So where is your heart? Your heart might be committed to uh, kids or a spouse or to a sports team, right? And your heart can be committed to that to a certain degree. It's okay to love something good, but so often we we love a good thing too much. And when our hearts, our affections are poured out on that thing in a way that's really worship, that means we're not really oriented toward locating our treasure and our heart with Christ Himself. So we ask ourselves this morning, where is your treasure? Or on the other side of that coin, where is your heart? Where would you find it? What do you find it loving? What would be one of the last things that you would be willing to part with because you, you consider it so incredibly dear? I heard a fantastic story on uh, the canoe trip this weekend uh, that Randy, Randy Letourneau shared. Uh, he works with the Living Well, which is a Christian nonprofit that's bringing clean water to Liberia. And uh, at some point in time, a woman... Uh, was put in contact with the ministry and heard about it, and she was thinking about her, the relationship of her earthly treasures and her heavenly treasures. And she felt compelled to reorder those to some extent, to sell some of her earthly shares and reinvest in heavenly shares. So she asked herself, what does it mean for me to give up some of my earthly shares? And Eventually she decided that what that meant for her was to part with her $12,000 wedding ring which she sold and invested that money into heavenly shares of providing clean water in the name of Christ to, uh, to Africa. Now, that's remarkable in and of itself, but the woman found the experience so rewarding that she began to compel other women to consider doing the same thing to the extent that she's compelled about 1,000 women to give up their wedding rings and invest that money in something right, that is more heavenly-oriented. You're not taking your wedding ring with you. What a beautiful picture of what it means to say, "I recognize this to simply be earthly, and I've decided to reinvest this something. Reinvest this in something that will echo in eternity." Right? The things that we so often value here—right, the gold, the metal—right. When when Revelation tells us that the streets are paved with gold, it doesn't mean that heaven's a really rich place. It means that the things that we value now. Are the same as dirt and asphalt on the other side of the kingdom. So, why would we give them such value now? Where does your heart lie? Where does your treasure lie? And are you willing to sell some earthly shares in order to gain some heavenly shares? This is the first aspect of singular purpose that Jesus brings to the disciples. Right? That there are two treasures and you had better be thoughtful about which treasure you are choosing to invest in. The second aspect of Jesus' teaching of singular purpose is about having two uh, kinds of light. And here he speaks about the human eye. Now the physiology of the human eye wasn't something that was deeply understood in the ancient world, at least not in the way that we understand it today. Generally, it was understood that the eye somehow allowed light to come into the body. If you close your eyes, you're in darkness. But if you open your eyes, light somehow proceeds into you in a way that you can perceive it. And this idea then was carried forward that uh, what you are perceiving or gazing upon then would affect the inside of you. And this is the idea that Jesus is expressing, that what you gaze upon, even though light is coming into your body in the act of seeing, may bring light in or may bring darkness in, depending on what has captured your focus. Now, if we, if we took this seriously, right? that uh, the physiology that Jesus describes in verse 22, look at it with me, the eye is the lamp of the body also, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If we took seriously the notion that what we gaze upon brings either light or darkness into us to the degree that that light or darkness affects our entire disposition, we would be very careful about what our eyes gazed upon. Right? A lot more careful than we probably are. I think we like to play with the darkness a bit. Uh, I also heard a funny story this weekend uh, when Father was speaking about his daughters. And at some point in time, his daughter had used language. She wasn't allowed uh, to use and she up she ended up as a punishment getting her mouth washed out with soap Which if, if if you've been there, that's a pretty unpleasant experience Well, the younger sister right another daughter at one point in time was was apparently obviously toying with the idea of also using words that were not uh, Not acceptable and so she was warned that this too will happen to you if you choose to disobey And the older sister testified, yes, this is very bad. You do not want your mouth washed out with soap, so don't go down this road. Now, what do you think the younger sister did? She's very clever, right? Secretly, she was observed not that long afterwards, right? Tasting a bar of (laughs) soap, right? Slightly, just with the tip of her tongue. How bad is this? I'm going to measure the consequence of my sin. And therefore, I can make a decision. How much sin can I engage before the consequences become too severe that I'm not willing to engage that sin? It's the story of all of our hearts. How much darkness can I allow in before I really get into trouble or before I have to focus on something that's light because it'll chase away the darkness? We think to ourselves, I think, sometimes that we have the ability to control or to monitor just how much goes in. And so I can enjoy this, uh, this aspect of sin for a certain period of time, but then I'll retreat and exercise control and be in good stead with God. As if we had that kind of uh, self-control over our hearts. As if ever playing with sin and darkness was a good thing. And so again, we come back to the question, what, what do our eyes take in and what do our eyes focus upon? Do any of us think that Jesus will be impressed on the day of account when we stand before him and, and say, uh, Jesus, my eyes never missed a regular season game of my favorite team. But it was hard to read your word. Or Jesus, my eyes never failed to, uh, to gaze intently at every anthropology catalog. But it, it was much more difficult to make it through reading a prayer to you. Or, Jesus, my eyes have spent untold hours looking at images that they should not. And yet my eyes have spent a very measured number of hours reading things that help me to think about you. Young people, this is perhaps so important for you. When you're in a, a period of time deciding what you will gaze upon and what your focus will be measured by and what kind of light and darkness you let in. If you make wise decisions now, it will serve you well over the years. Because if we underestimate the darkness that is within us, then we're dark about our darkness. We're self-deluded about the degree of darkness within us, and this leads us to a terribly dangerous place, which is the nature of Jesus' warning in verse 23b. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now notice, the person in darkness can still see. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But if we've focused on darkness, and the darkness has come in, and we pretend that the darkness has not affected affected us, Jesus says, indeed, how great is the darkness. And so, being singular of purpose means not only that you're intentional about where you invest your treasure, but you're intentional about what your eye gazes upon, and what captures your vision. And then thirdly, Jesus says that there are two masters, and those who are disciples where singular of purpose will choose one master over the other. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, off the bat, some of you may be thinking, well, I've worked for two bosses. And that is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is immersed in the ancient language of slavery. What he's saying is a slave cannot be owned by two masters. Well, why not? Why couldn't a slave be owned and go back and forth between two masters? Well, let's look at it first from the slave's perspective. Eventually, the slave is going to come to prefer one master to the other. Will he not? One master is going to be perhaps kinder, or one master is going to give him more time off, or one master is going to offer more perks like, Here are my old clothes. You may make use of them. Or here are more scraps from my table. One way or another, you come to prefer one master over another, and then you gravitate toward that master, and you work less for the other master, and you become a person of a divided heart. And you become angry and frustrated with the other master, so that really your work is nothing more than contempt for him. Now, here's the challenge. Do you think your heart will make a good decision on which master you will serve? Will you choose to serve God as master, or will you choose to serve something that is earthly that you feel gives you better perks in the given moment? Our hearts are fickle. They constantly choose the wrong master in any given moment because we feel like that master delivers freedom from pain or pleasure or something that we want, and so we move toward it. But to the degree that we move toward that false master, we have contempt for our true master. We fail to serve him in a way that honors him and that is good for us. Well, if that's the slave's perspective, what is the master's perspective? From a master's perspective, do you want a slave who has his interest, his commitment, his affections divided? You've paid a lot for the slave. In fact, God spared no expense at redeeming you. And will he take lightly that you simply decide at various times to serve other masters? To say, yes, God, thank you for what you've done in Jesus. I appreciate that. And to make sure I'm in good stead with you, I'm going to offer you 35% of my time and my energy and my money. The other 65% I'm going to distribute through a master portfolio I'm going to give some to my work and some to uh, my outlet that I find pleasure in, and I'm going to give some to the toys that I like to purchase. And this is what's going to give me kind of a complete and well-rounded life. And to you, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. Right? Eventually, as your love goes toward the other master, you don't balance it. You come to hate the other master. You come to hate God because he does not deliver the things that you necessarily love. He delivers the things you need out of his love for you. And so a singularity of purpose requires that you uh, decide between two masters. Two treasures, two kinds of light that can enter our eyes, and two masters. What does it mean to truly be singular of purpose? it wasn't but maybe uh, two weeks ago that a remarkable human achievement occurred which many thought was impossible you may have seen in the news that a man named Alex Honold successfully free climbed El Capitan uh, which it, to give ourselves some bearings El Capitan is the massive 3,000 foot granite face in Yosemite National Park if you look at it it looks Pretty much like a wall of rock. And there are sections where are there, they're so smooth, they say to, a, to an average person's eye, you would say there's no handhold here whatsoever. And when Honold climbs, he apparently looks like Spider Man because he's trained himself to uh, maximize these grips that are non existent to an average person to actually lift himself up. And there are sections wh- are, that are notoriously slippery. The journalist interviewing him said, Yeah, when's the last time you fell practicing? And Honold said, Two days ago, uh, before he made the climb. Right? Four hours. Imagine the lactic acid in your arms and legs. It's a, the worst section is at 1,800 feet up, uh, which is, is considered almost impossible to get through. And can you imagine just sitting there and not panicking when something's not going well? Now, how did Honold become this? Phenomenal human being that achieved what was considered impossible. National Geographic is coming out with a special, by the way, which I can't wait to watch, because just thinking about this makes me queasy. Like I, I'm not really sure what possesses a human being to do this. But so, how did Honol get to this place? Well, he was unquestionably singular of purpose. Right? Uh, he gave up uh, coffee, alcohol, drugs, sugar. He moved into a van that was specially designed for his training. It had a small kitchen in it, and above the sliding door on the side, it had one of those uh, pull-up bars that are just for fingers and has all the different handholds, and he would sit there all day doing thousands of pull-ups. He uh, devised a new training technique, which is they somehow affixed windshield wipers, blades, at a 45-degree angle so that he would have to hold himself up uh, by the tenuous slippery rubber of the windshield wiper blade, uh, he would have to suspend his weight and get used to having almost nothing to hold on to uh, in order uh, to do that. And then, of course, he did El Capitan so many times that he had every move memorized. Right? If, oh, for the 3,000 feet, for the four and a half hours it would take him to go from the bottom to the top, he knew every move that his body would make. That's singularity of purpose. I'm not sure that's a purpose really worth such singularity. But I read a story like that, and I think, why does a rock climber have more singularity of purpose than those who confess that Jesus Christ died on their behalf? I have a lot more reason to be singular in purpose in serving the living God than somebody who's climbing a piece of rock. And I don't know that that singularity of purpose really characterizes my heart or the church. It doesn't mean condemnation, right? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus' singularity of purpose. Perhaps best captured, when he goes into the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. And Satan comes to him and says, make these stones bread. I know you're very hungry. And he makes, darn it. (laughs) It's so hard to read you just lose it all. And Eric is laughing at me back there, which... So, so all right. For the, for the first time ever, I thought I could set my timer this morning. For the time I wanted to know I wanted to be close to finishing, it was all set. And uh, I thought if your phone was off, it wouldn't make a sound. So it went off in the last service, right, at this point. And, uh, and we had the same experience. So... Afterwards, uh, Dwayne, our technology expert, told us there's no such thing as a silent timer on the iPhone. Note to iPhone users. So I set an alarm, which I'm pretty sure you can make vibrate somehow. But (laughs) it said vibrate. I failed. That's why it just went off. I apologize. It was very distracting. I will come up with a new system uh, that we'll put into practice next week. Jesus' singularity of purpose. Right? 40 days hungry, Satan says, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, I live by the word of God alone. He takes Jesus to the top of the temple and he says, throw yourself down. Make God prove that he loves you because he sure doesn't look like it right now. And Jesus says, no, you don't put the Lord your God to the test. And Satan takes him to another mountaintop and he says, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours. And Jesus says, no, we worship and serve God alone. In each case, he quotes scripture, but demonstrates his complete singularity of purpose in obeying the Father and trusting that the Father's story for him will be the best possible story, even though the stories that Satan offers to him are very attractive. Right In that very moment, Jesus faces Yes, I could have two treasures. The choice is before me. There are two kinds of light here and there are two masters. And in each decision he chooses a singularity of purpose that his whole heart will belong to God alone. This is the call that Jesus invites us to today. That his singularity of purpose has what? It's won us. It's saved us. We are saved by his grace. But now he invites us to participate in that singularity of purpose that we might glorify God, but also be more intimate with him. To the degree that we would invest in earthly treasures, to the degree that we would allow our eyes to take in darkness rather than light, and to the degree that we would, uh, we would serve masters other than our Lord Jesus, is to the degree that we move away from him. But as we locate right our singular purpose in his calling, And in our salvation and seek to serve him, we draw near to him. So that is the challenge this morning. It's the invitation this morning that I think Jesus makes to all of us. Where in your life are you not singular in your purpose? Well, right, there are lots of places. But as you think about it, right, as we talk about two treasures and two lights and two masters, what comes to mind And you think, oh, my treasure is really earthly in this capacity or I'm letting too much darkness in in this capacity or I really have multiple masters in this capacity. Now hear me, well. my challenge, you may be sitting there and saying, I've got this big problem, this big issue, I know it, you've called me out, I'm going to go out and change it. Stop, because you're probably not. Human beings don't change that way. And our hearts grow in righteousness in slow ways. And this is the way that you really could go forth and be more of a disciple than you are when you came in here, is to choose one small thing or one small aspect of a thing that is a problem and say, yes, I'm going out and I'm going to sell this earthly treasure and invest it in heavenly treasure. Or yes, I'm going to go out and do something about the darkness that I'm allowing into my gaze and instead allow more light into my gaze into the inside of me because of what my eyes are focused upon. Or yes, I really am serving multiple masters. How can I put one to death? There's one small aspect and focus on that. And in that, right, you realign your treasure and more light pours into you. Right? And you honor the master who loves you and calls him to yourself. And as you do that, right, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I guarantee you, your heart will be more happy and peaceful and joyful with Christ and with the masters it currently serves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We ask for your forgiveness in the ways that we are very fickle of heart, very adulterous in our affections. We ask that you would help us to focus uh, increasingly singularly on you. And where aspects of our life do not come into play in the kingdom, help us to put them away. Help us to realign our treasures and to seek light and to serve you alone as our true master. We know that, you, that life is found in these decisions. But I pray for those who are reluctant that you would meet them and that you would really allow them to experience that abundant life in such a way that it woos them away uh, from false masters and darkness and false treasure. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.